Amavatasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namavatasa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Bhutang Tamang Sankhang Namasami always feel it's a, a good reminder at the beginning of giving a talk to pay homage to the Buddha and this this month of May is is, is the Wesak month where we remember the the, live, the Buddha who lived in India Nepal they say now actually this year is, is uh, supposed to be the 2000 600th anniversary of his birth, so it's a very special year. Um, and I think I find it very helpful just to, to bring to mind the struggles that he went through in his search for enlightenment. So he, he grew up in a very privileged situation, wonderful place to three palaces to live in and um, all of the sense pleasures that any young man could wish for he was trained in in many many arts and skills and in um, he's very learned knowledgeable in the in the scriptures of that time and you know he had pretty much the best one could wish for and uh, he was married, he married a very lovely woman and had a child, a son and yet inside him there was this calling or gnawing away in a sense of not being able to be satisfied with these most perfect conditions and and that, and that inner calling just kept him moving on and moving on. So at the age of 29, he left the palace, cut off his hair and beard, put on the robes of an ascetic and um, sought out a teacher. And he lived with this teacher and practiced with him until he was actually further advanced than his, his teacher was. So this was in the practice of meditation. He became um, more accomplished than his teacher. And then he left his teacher and he, he went to another meditation teacher. And he practiced with him until he, his, his practice was equal to that of his teacher quite quickly. And uh, his teacher said, you know, why don't you stay with me? You know, we can teach together. We'll have great we have a huge following, it would be really wonderful. But the Buddha wasn't practicing for that reason. He wanted to find freedom from suffering. And when he looked, even though he could experience the most um, subtle jhanas, the, the fine material jhanas, and had, uh, you know, could dwell in, in very blissful states and peaceful states, he was still conditioned, so he was not satisfied with with this as the as the as the ending of suffering, and so he he moved on and became an ascetic, like a very uh, austere ascetic. And he he met together with five other men who were on a similar path, and they practiced together for quite some time. Um, I think a number of years, and uh, yeah, they would kind of have competitions. It's, it's the, one gets the impression, you know, who could be the most ascetic, eat the eat the least, and you know, do the most harsh ascetic practices, with the with the idea that this would burn up all karma and lead to the ending of, of suffering. And so he practiced in this way until he almost died, he was close to death, and he realized he was so exhausted that he couldn't even, you know, he couldn't even bring up a, a, a wholesome mind state, he was just totally exhausted. 
physically and mentally. And uh, so he, he recognized, well, this isn't the way. And one day a young woman or a girl was going into the forest and was offering a very delicious milk rice to the wood spirits. So she was a local girl, and it was one of the one of the customs to go and offer to the spirits of the wood to make sure that they were kept on the you kept on the right side of them. So she was going to do that, and she saw the the um, ascetic Gotama sitting there, looking probably a bit frightening. I think his hair had fallen out, and his skin was was kind of burnt from the sun, black. They say very dark from the sun and leathery, and he was emaciated. And she went and she offered, she thought, oh, maybe this is a, the earth spirit, that's a, the tree spirit or something that's manifest, and offered the, this delicious milk rice to the ascetic Gotama, and he took the rice and ate it, and began to feel a sense of well-being, and recognized, oh, you know, when, there's, when, the, when the body is taken care of well enough, then the mind is, is in, a, in a better state, and then you know, it's, 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 it's more conducive to finding the, the path of freedom. And he recognized that any, any extreme is not the, the path to enlightenment, but it was the, the middle way between the two extremes of indulgence in sensuality and harsh asceticism. So, so the, his his fellow ascetics were, were appalled and disgusted by his behaviour, by his uh, luxurious behaviour, and, and figured that he'd just given up on the quest for enlightenment, and and uh, and he went off on his own way. So you can see through his life, he just again and again tried things out to the, to their to the ultimate, and then left, not finding what he was want, what he was searching for, left that, and then went on to the next thing, and not just trying it for a little while and then doing something else and trying it out for a little while, but really applying himself completely to that, to what he he thought may be the path that would lead to liberation, and then when he found he reached a limit, then he would uh, it wouldn't go any further, then he would take a different course. So it was an investigation. <coughs> And uh, and so he went off on his own and was scorned by his uh, fellow ascetics and was very much alone, really, just following his own um, intuition and investigation. And through his uh, struggles to, to find the right balance, so there are stories about his practice of meditation, he, sat, he, he went to the, what is now known as Bodhgaya, it was Gaya, and sat down under the Bodhi tree and determined not to move until he was fully enlightened. And went through many struggles in his meditation, great struggles, and was uh, bombarded by all kinds of what they call in the suttas the forces of Mara. So, you know, being seduced into into doing something nicer than sitting there struggling under the Bodhi tree, or, um, or not at all, and um, having uh, you know incredible pain arising in his body and uh, having doubts, and, and that, I don't know if you've ever seen any murals or, or f- f- pictures of this this scene, but it's. Uh, you have this image of the Buddha, usually, usually have him sitting in, in the earth-touching mudra, which is the same as at the back of the hall here, and surrounded by all of these demons and, and beautiful women and uh, uh, weapons, and people shooting at him and all kinds of stuff, and all of this is going on. And in the midst of it, he's finding this place of centeredness, and he touches the earth, and he says, the earth is my witness. The earth witnesses the, the goodness of his past actions. So any good deeds that he has done or any, any wholesome intention that he has acted on, it's like the, the, the earth has stored up the memory of that. 
and he touches the earth and he says, the earth is my witness. Even though all of these Maras, these hordes of Mara, they call it, are coming at me, telling me that I can't do it, telling me that I'm mistaken, I'm wrong, trying to kill me, trying to seduce me, trying to pull me off track. Even though all of this is going on, the earth is my witness. The earth knows that I, I have a, a right to become fully realized, to become, to, to become, to awaken. And eventually when he found that after much struggle, when he kind of relaxed a little and he found a, 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 a resting place, the mind naturally settled and he recognized, ah, oh, this, this is it. You know, this, is the, this is the place. This is the middle, the, this middle place. It's not, not pushing, not pulling. It's, a, it's the place of, of letting go and of, of being, you could say. So if you, if you look at that life story, there's, there's a lot of renunciation and, and, and there's a lot of doing. Doing different practices, developing different practices. And through doing, through practicing and through developing, um, working on these different practices, he developed great strength and, and many spiritual, I want to say the word powers, I mean strengths. Uh, but and and it was that that moment of letting go and relaxing that opened the door to the awakened mind. So, and they say after he, after his enlightenment, then he dwelt in in a state of bliss for seven days. <coughs> And just really enjoyed the bliss of enlightenment. And then the thought arose, oh, I wonder if anyone else would understand this. You know, I wonder if anyone else would be able to get it. Because it's such a, a subtle truth, so it's, it's so elusive. And he thought about it and he thought, well, <laughs> it's subtle. And, and people, are, people like their pleasures, you know. People are fond of... Of, uh, of their attachments in the world. So perhaps I'll just carry on and enjoy the bliss of my own enlightenment and not trouble myself with having to, because it is, can be a bit of a trouble, having to um, try and explain and, and guide other people to this place <coughs> of freedom. And fortunately, uh, the story goes that uh, the, one of the, the gods of the Brahma realm, which is one of the, which is the highest kind of celestial realm, heard, overheard or sort of picked up on the Buddha's thoughts and said, "Oh, hang on a minute." And then he, he came down and spoke to the Buddha and asked, "Please, out of compassion, for those with little dust in their eyes, please teach the Dhamma that those with little dust in their eyes can awaken." which is a good thing, otherwise none of us would be here now. So he began to think about, well, who, could, who might understand my teaching? And he thought about the first teacher he'd been with. He thought, well, he would, he would, he would be, you know, he would understand it if I explain it. And then he recognized, oh, actually he's died. He's already died. And then he thought about his next teacher, meditation teacher and oh, he would understand it but uh, just uh, I forget the exact timing but you know just like three days before or so he, he had died so he just missed that opportunity and then he thought about the five ascetics that he'd been practicing with and he thought well they would be able to get it so he went back to find them and uh, went back to the forest where they'd been practicing together found the, the five ascetics and his friends, and they were really scornful. Oh, there he is. Look at him, the old uh, softy. He went and ate milk rice, and what's he coming around here for? So they, they said, well, when he comes, we're not going to make a seat for him. We won't welcome him. You know, he's, just a, he's, he's useless, this guy. But as he approached, 
they couldn't help themselves but make a, make a seat and 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 get and prepare some water and and make you know a, a welcome because they they recognised the the great um, clarity and and brightness that that uh, this now the Buddha had and he taught the the four noble truths in the eightfold path to to the five ascetics and through teaching this through offering this teaching one of the five became a stream enterer so that means had the first um, insight into enlightenment and the other four still didn't kind of quite get it yet and uh, so the four noble truths many of you will be familiar with the four four noble truths being first recognizing there is suffering or there is dukkha dukkha is much we translate it as suffering but it has a much broader spectrum than that it can be from from very subtle discontent to intense suffering it kind of covers the whole spectrum there is I'll use the word dukkha, there is dukkha and dukkha or, or suffering should be understood and then dukkha has been understood so this being the first noble truth and you know, what is it to understand suffering? I like to think of the image of actually standing under understanding, standing under suffering so our, our instinctive thing is to move away from it when we feel discomfort, physical pain, worry, um, emotional turmoil. We we just want to get away from that. That's the instinctual thing to do. But the Buddha is saying, understand suffering. This is is a door. This This is a doorway to liberation. And so to do that, we, we need the courage to turn and face what is, what is happening in the present moment, the, the physical struggles or the mental or emotional pain that we may be feeling. And to, to really bring the mind into a state of centeredness and presence and allow ourselves to stand under that, to let it rain down on us so that we, we don't so that we feel it as it is, so we experience it directly as it is. And you know, when, we, when we're just at the very edge of, of dukkha, of, of physical pain or emotional pain, when we're hovering around at the edge of it, it's a little bit like, like um, pulling off a band-aid slowly. You, know, you think it's going to be less painful, but it's much more painful. And uh, when we go right into the centre of suffering, it's like going... And just taking it off quickly, and you have a little ouch, and then it's kind of okay. There's a sensation. There's a sensation, and you can't really say it's painful or, or pleasant or anything. It's, it's a sensation. So it's kind of like that <coughs> when we when we s- stand under suffering. And I know that uh, many people have probably been going through struggles on this first couple of days of the retreat body getting used to sitting still for long periods of time and and who knows what you know the mind what we brought with us you know the turmoils of the mind and there's the very little distraction here so there's the um, likelihood that these things will start to surface and if we if we always meet those with fear and trepidation then we will experience quite a lot of suffering but if we can see, okay, this is an opportunity. This is this is uh, this has been given at this time. And how is it if I just center my mind and go into this, still staying in connection with the body, so touching the earth, but but allowing that dukkha just as it is to be fully present. And the second noble truth is uh, there is a cause of suffering. And the cause of suffering 
should be let, is it let go of or understood? I'm not sure now. Let go of, yes. The cause of suffering should be let go of. And the cause of suffering has been let go of. So the cause of suffering is the attachment to me and mine, or craving or grasping. So, you know, when pain arises in the body, what we tend to do is we think, oh, you know, I've got that pain in my knee again or in my back. And then we kind of tense up around it. Ooh, that pain again. And, uh, and then we start thinking, oh gosh, you know, I'm going to have to sit with this for the next five days. It's not going to go away, it's going to be endless. And probably I'm going to just do some real damage to myself. And then I'm, when I go home, you know, I'll be going to be in a wheelchair before I know it. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what our minds do, you know. We, we, we grasp hold of what's happening and we make it personal and absolute. Me, mine and forever. So the cause of suffering should be let go of. I kind of have a feeling it should be understood. And uh, <clears throat> and then the, there is the cessation of suffering. So we can often overlook that cessation and we just go on to the next thing. But there is a cessation of suffering. So even if... Um, at this moment, you're not, you know, maybe during the meditation you're experiencing a lot of pain and now, because you're listening to me and you're a little bit distracted, you're not feeling it. <laughs> it could be so. Or it could be when you're asleep at night or it could be while you're eating your meal that, that you're not feeling that. Then uh, if you notice, you'll find that that has ceased. There has been cessation of that particular suffering. So we, we sometimes think in terms of cessation of suffering being the complete cessation of suffering that the Buddha experienced. And then they feel like, well, you know, I've been practicing all this time, I haven't experienced a cessation of suffering yet. You know, <laughs> still, still waiting. Um, but it, what we need to do is to notice the little cessations. Oh, you know, that pain I had earlier on today is not there now. So there is a cessation of suffering. And uh, and this is to be realised. This is to be to be to be experienced and known here and now. So so this path of uh, understanding suffering and letting go of the cause of suffering and realizing the cessation of suffering this is a very this is a not very but a totally immediate path this is this is about our experience here and now and noticing what is going on here and now and understanding how to relate to our experience with wisdom and with compassion here and now and the the path that leads to the cessation of suffering is the Noble Eightfold Path. So I won't go into long detail of the Eightfold Path, but it begins with, with right view, which, the, uh, which actually means approaching experience through the Four Noble Truths. Right thought, thoughts of non-harm, non-ill will, and thoughts of renunciation. Right speech, which in this context is pretty easy. Right action. And in the suttas again and again, right action is described as um, f refraining from harming, destroying living beings, refraining from taking what is not given, and refraining from sexual misconduct or abusing sensuality. So this is, again and again is, is the description of right action. So everyone here has taken the eight precepts. So you know you can you can kind of have this, have the reassurance that whatever action you are doing here, as long as it is within that context, it is right action. <clears throat> <clears throat> 
and right livelihood. So during this, this, this retreat time, you could say our livelihood is to, is to practice with integrity, to practice well, practice with integrity. And uh, when you go home, you, you'll have your different kinds of livelihood. And we have ours as, as Buddhist nuns. And it's, it is very important to you know, that, that, that our practice isn't, that, that our work, let's say, our livelihood is, is congruent with our practice so that we're not coming to meditate on a retreat and then um, dealing in hard drugs or something like that. Or people talk, you know, it's, 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 or prostitution or killing weapons, this kind of thing which uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people are doing in the world. So it is important in, in our, you know, outside of this retreat context to also use that to, to find as, as well as we can a livelihood which is supportive of our practice and also supportive of what is good in the world. Right effort. Right effort is, is always very tricky and people often think of it as a, as a very subtle place. You know, you've got to find just the right effort. But you could say the right effort is also the, the effort to abandon unskillful states and not to increase unskillful states that have arisen. So to, to you know, not feed our unwholesome mind states and to develop wholesome states there's one that I've already forgotten so to, to cultivate and increase the wholesome and to sustain the wholesome now that makes sense thank you sister so developing it and, and sustaining what is wholesome. So putting energy, instead of putting energy into uh, the, the struggles and the, the negative mind states, to put it into developing and sustaining what is wholesome. And right mindfulness. So we've been speaking a lot about putting the mind, bringing the mind into the present moment and meeting our experience in the present moment with openness and mindfulness so and bringing mindfulness into everything that we do in the day so finding right mindfulness and right concentration so again right concentration we can be concentrated on on what is unwholesome and that will lead to more unwholesome states so we can concentrate on what is wholesome which will lead us away from the unwholesome into wholesome states. So this is uh, you know, a guidance for us to use the experience that we have for liberation. So we can often think, if only I didn't have this back problem, then I could get enlightened. If only I hadn't done all those terrible things in the past that I now have to sit with, then I could get enlightened. You know, if only. I was healthy, then I could get enlightened. But actually none of these things are an obstacle to enlightenment. They're for us to use. They're our fuel. And I uh, also wanted to speak a little bit about the five hindrances. So I'm sure that everybody here has been spending time with the five hindrances over this, these days. <laughs> and again this is something that people often think you know I shouldn't have the hindrances they're those things that I shouldn't have I shouldn't have the hindrances and if I do then um, I'm, not do I'm doing something wrong I'm not practicing right I'm a hopeless case you know, this kind of thing and I, I certainly did this for a long time when I was in, living in the monastery already maybe <coughs> two or three years actually to be honest <laughs> and uh, whenever any of the 
whenever I notice in my meditation that I, that I was lost in sense of desire or, or negativity, ill will, in uh, rest with restlessness, you know, getting caught up in restlessness, or sloth and torpor, which is kind of my tendency, or doubt. Doubt is kind of tricky to catch, but if I, when I, whenever I notice any of those five hindrances, I would then start berating myself for not for not practicing properly. You know, God, you know, you've got this perfect situation. You're in a monastery. You're a nun. You're, you've got a good meditation teacher. And what are you doing? You're sitting there, getting lost in sensual desire, or getting lost in ill will. And, and then I would then I would criticize myself. Oh, you're really so stupid. You know, you're really hopeless. And on it would go. So that would be uh, not. You know, adding more <laughs> delusion to the already existing delusion. And then one uh, retreat, Ajahn Suchito, who was the abbot of the monastery where I was living, gave a, a beautiful, about a, I think about a month's teaching actually, on simply knowing which hindrance is present in the moment. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, how compassionate. You know, we don't have to berate ourselves for, for not being perfectly enlightened but just to know what, what, what hindrance is present now and so then we're not caught in it once we know what it is we're not caught in it anymore so when we know that sensual desire is present and you know, I'm sitting here in a meditation hall and my mind is, is off having some fantasy once we know that then we can acknowledge, we can know, oh, this is, this is the, this is sensual desire. And this is actually a hindrance to enlightenment. So then we've got a choice, you know, we can carry only the fantasy, which is a kind of easy downward slope, or we can actually acknowledge it for what it is and, and say, oh, so what do I want now? Do I want to just carry on in this fantasy, which just kind of isn't going anywhere and just is leading my mind off in, on a, on some kind of dream, or do I actually do I really want to wake up? So it's an important question to ask, because if if you do want to just go off on the fantasies and, and not wake up, then you're probably in the wrong place. <laughs> there are probably much better places you could be than this, <laughs> if that's your predominant interest. But if you're interested in in waking up, then then you can notice what the mind's doing. And you can't always stop it. It's not always possible to stop. But you can know what it is and you can, you can recognize this is sensual desire. So the story will go on and be all alluring and interesting. This is sensual desire. And, it, and it's, not, it's a hindrance to enlightenment. Or if you're experiencing a lot of ill will, you, know, you might be feeling really, really negative about having to sit for long periods of time and having pain in the body and the mind is just grinding away at the resentment and the irritation and the uh, resistance so if that's going on then you can recognize oh this is the hindrance of ill will present there is ill will towards the pain in this body and you know knowing the four noble truths then you have a choice you could go on grinding away, or you could recognize, ah, there is suffering. And you can, you can realign yourself with the, the Dhamma in the midst of, of that pain. And then restlessness, this is a really difficult one. Restlessness is very difficult on a retreat, <laughs> because we have these long sittings and can just feel very, very agitated. But again, just to know it, okay, this is restlessness, it has this quality. And to investigate it, what is it, what is it like? You know, what does it feel like? What is it doing in the body, in the mind? And to get to know the experience directly of restlessness and know it for what it is, restlessness, it's a, a hindrance to enlightenment. So when I say hindrance to enlightenment, it's also, I mean... It's a, a hindrance to the mind being simply open as it is. And the, 
the fourth hindrance of sloth and torpor. So it's also very difficult, sleepy. And you know, many of you have also probably come from busy lives and then you come and you've, you've just had the yesterday evening and then today we're just sitting, walking, sitting, walking. And, you know, you might be really tired. So quite often people on the first day or the first full long, this is actually the second day, but on the, on the full day of the retreat, start to nod and and struggle and and then again we can get into that self berating mode. So instead of berating you just try and try and get a sense, is this really tiredness? Am I really tired? And maybe I need a rest. Or is this just resistance? You know, sloth and torpor, resistance. So if it's resistance then you can if you're really honest you, you can you can tell the difference. <laughs> And uh, it can be it can be feeling quite quite all right, but the eyelids get really heavy, and you just have these concrete eyelids. You just can't keep them up, and then the rest of you feels quite all right. And you can even be sort of semi-conscious. You think, oh, I'm pretty sure I'm here, you know, but just phew, the eyelids are going. Then you find yourself down here somewhere, <laughs> nodding, and uh, so recognizing, oh, sloth and torpor. It's, it's one of the, the more tricky of the hindrances because it sort of creeps up on you unexpected. Restlessness, you, you can't help but notice it really. But sloth and torpor, it kind of creeps up on you and it sort of lulls you into this comfortable... So you think, oh, maybe this is one of the jhanas. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so if you find that... Uh, you know, experience a lot of sloth and torpor. First of all, check out if you're tired and, and if you are, give yourself a rest in one of the walking meditations uh, or at some of one of the breaks. And uh, and then, like we were saying earlier on, find skillful means. So like standing up is really good because you're much less likely to fall asleep while you're standing up, although it has happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> so be careful. <laughs> And uh, opening your eyes, if you can. I, I find this difficult because I open my eyes and then before I know it, they're closed again. Oh, open, open, open eyes. And, uh, closed again. So that, that doesn't always work. Uh, but you can try that. And the, the Buddha also recommended pulling your ears, earlobes. Pulling your earlobes helps to sort of stimulate the circulation, I think, and the, and the, and the, and the, the, the head. So... That's one way. And walking meditation is also very good. Um, and he <laughs> there is also a, not that you can do it here because there aren't any, but there is also a, a recommendation that if you, know, if, you really, if you really can't get over sloth and torpor, then meditate on the edge of the cliff. <laughs> it works wonders. <laughs> Start to wake up, and that's that's when you know. That's when you know. That's not, don't do that if you're tired. But that's you know if 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 it's just a, it's a dull mind state. It's it's a dullness. It's a not being present with what's happening. So you know when you when you do these things, it's like you wake yourself up. You know, you're not going to fall asleep if, if the consequences are to tumble down a cliff. And then you see it's just a, it's just an obscuration of the mind. It's not actually doesn't actually have any substance, and the the fifth hindrance is is the hindrance of doubt, and doubt is is a hard one to catch because it's very believable, um, and it it has the the phenomena of going round and 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 round, and it's usually uh, in the head, the thinking, and. <coughs> You know, we tend to think that it, uh, with doubt, it, it has that kind of trick uh, that it sort of tells you, well, if you just if you just keep going over it enough, then you'll get the right answer. If you just keep going over it enough times, then you, then you'll get it, and and usually that is not the case. So if you find yourself caught in doubt, then go to something that's present and tangible. So move away from the thinking mind and go into the body. Just rest your attention into the belly. Come to the heart. You know, find find a place within the body 
that, it, that is not thinking, but that is, that is experiencing directly. And generally we can come up with a much clearer um, understanding when we, we come into what is directly present. And if you find that that's going on, if, you, if you're finding in, in relation to the meditation guidance, that you're, you're not sure what to do, and then you've got a lot of doubt, then you, so you can re- just recognize, oh, that's doubt. So let's just choose something and do that. It's not going to be wrong. Okay, just, just do mindfulness of the breath in the belly, or mindfulness of the breath in the nostrils, or body suit. It's not going to be wrong. So you just choose one thing and, and do that. And then you've moved away from the hindrance of doubt into direct experience again. So these, uh, these hindrances, they, they keep on keeping on. You know, they keep coming up and then there's another one and another one. And if we know them for what they are, you know, we don't have to get rid of them. If we know them for what they are, they lose their power. They lose their... Um, enchantment and when we start to wake up to how things really are and it can be in the in the meditation that the mind settles and concentrates and the hindrances fall away and you experience that really simple peaceful experience of being it's wonderful and you know this is like a little taste of of how it is when the, the mind is clear. So a fully enlightened being is not, does not experience, is not hindered by the hindrances. They're not absolute. And so the, uh, an, an enlightened being is dwelling in a state of direct experience. It's just knowing things as they are without the, the colouring and the turbulence and the confusion of, of the hindrances. So we can experience little moments of that. It can be in the meditation. It can also be when we go outside and just open to nature. And we, and we lose ourselves. We forget ourselves for a moment. And, and there just is. So I know, I'm pretty sure that everybody here has experienced that even just for a moment, most likely even just for a moment, and then there's this, ah, oh, it's like a little liberation, it's like a moment of liberation. And then the self comes in again, with its agendas and its stories and all of that. But if we can just re- recollect and remember those, those little moments where we've experienced just being, simply being, then, you know, it, it can be a reminder when we're in the midst of of turmoil or of confusion or of <clears throat> struggle, that you know, the, the true nature of the mind is, is open and relaxed. So I think it's, it's very important it was this, in, the, in the marriage of being and doing to, to recognize the, the relationship between the two. So sometimes we think, you know, we should just be, just be, everything's fine. But then we don't really know how to just be. We're trying to just be, we find ourselves doing this and doing that and falling asleep and irritated, restless, and you just don't know how to just be. So you know, I think it's important to just think about, recollect that, that path that the Buddha took. You know, there was a lot of doing, a lot of investigation and action and effort and it was in after that long period of, of effort and struggle that the letting go came. And in that letting go, in relation to the, the, the effort that had gone before, there was this opening. And the, you also find this in, in many of the stories in the Terigata and the Teragata, the, 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 the sayings of the enlightened nuns and monks of the Buddha's time. Quite a number of them talk about uh, the struggles, you know, years, de- decades sometimes of struggling. And 
you're struggling and struggling and feeling like, oh, I'm just not getting it, just not getting it, and, and then kind of giving up. And then in the moment of giving up, there's, the mind opens. There's a, there's a lovely story about a, a, a nun who's, who's striving and striving and, and really, really dedicated and really putting effort into her practice and working really hard and, and, and you know, not finding the peace that she's looking for. And then, you know, she, so she's doing a meditation practice, but she also has to do you know, basic chores, you know, like you all have to do yogi jobs, and she has some chores to do, and she goes with a, with a clay jar to get water from the river, to get drinking water. And then as she's walking back, she, she stumbles and, and drops the, the pot of water, and it breaks open. And in the moment that the pot breaks open, her mind breaks open, and she's released. So it, didn't ha- it probably wouldn't have happened if she hadn't done all that work before. If she'd have just thought, oh, now I've broken the pot. <laughs> you know. But it's uh, putting together the, the effort, and then it's almost through grace there's this letting go. And we experience the true nature of the mind. So don't be at all discouraged by any struggles you may be going through in these first days of the retreat. And the <coughs> the the path is a uh, you know it's it's worth thinking of it thinking of it in terms of giving one's life to this path. Don't think of it in terms of like I want to get in line by the end of the retreat, because if you if you're grasping like that, you're much less likely to get enlightened by the end of this retreat. But if you give yourself, if you just offer yourself, if you give, give yourself to the practice, offer this life, you know. May this be dedicated to awakening. And there'll be times when your life is, is very much not about that, but there'll be a knowing that your life is not about that right now. You're, you're kind of wandering off on a side track. And you kind of know where the path is over there. I know that if I just go a bit more left, I'll get back onto it again. But if you make that intention, then you know, any moment of any day can be an offering of oneself to the path. You're, it, it brings you back to the path. And there's really nothing more worthy in a human life than to offer your life to this path of awakening. So we are, you know, um, fallible human beings. And it's very important as, as part of the practice to bring in a sense of kindness and compassion to this rather confused human being who has a, a, a beautiful aspiration. I speak personally here. Who has a beautiful aspiration and has a lot of work to do. You know. So it's very important to have a sense of kindness for this being and compassion for this being. I don't mean you should only have it for me, but you have it all for each for yourself. <laughs> but, uh, you know, not, not, to, not to be judgmental and berating that you're not as far on as you'd like to be. You're not as perfect as you'd like to be. You're not as enlightened as you'd like to be. You're not as good as you'd like to be. But to, to meet yourself where you are, and see that this, this that you are, is the perfect material for enlightenment. Just like this. Because from here, you have all the, the well, you have the root in to the path. You have, there is suffering, there is, and where, and where there is suffering, there is the path. They belong together. 
there is ignorance and where there is ignorance there is the potential for freedom if we look in the right way. So as long as we're honest with what we meet, that's the vital key is to be honest with what we meet. So we have this wonderful opportunity and you know, to be born in the human realm is said to be the, the most auspicious, the most beneficial for enlightenment. Because even though we can have moments of, of bliss and joy and great happiness, we'll also equally have moments of despair and dejection and struggle. And we, those two come together in the, in the human life. I was just going, went for a little walk just before the evening teaching and as uh, standing by the there's a little creek down there I'm not sure if anyone's been there it's a very beautiful little creek and just listening to the music of the creek bubbling and uh, resting on a tree and thinking gosh it's such a beautiful place this place is it's such a sacred land here it's so beautiful here and for for a moment it kind of got a little bit heavenly so beautiful, and the creeks singing its little tune, and and the trees are so beautiful. Trees here covered with moss, and most you know those lovely rolling hills, and it's a sacred place. And people come here for practice, and it's kind of getting a little bit heavenly. And then I I noticed, oh, that's poison oak just there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, oh yeah, that's that's a human. Re- this is this is the realm we live in, you know. It's got all these wonderful things and there's going to be poison oak, there'll be a rattlesnake and you know, it's, it's part of, of this realm, it's part of life it's part of the experience so the thing is to welcome it all and to use it all for our path of liberation so I'd like to offer that for your encouragement this evening <coughs> Damayang tamakataya satu karanda tamase Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.